This is John Halsman. Good morning and welcome to Around the World in 20 Minutes, our weekly look at the world and what makes it tick. And I am back from beautiful and sunny Dubai in a fascinating week's meetings with my trusty chief of staff, John Goodnight, and I'm sitting instead in a rainy Milan. Uh, but I wanted to catch up um, and talk about what's been going on since we last spoke uh, when I talked about explaining reality to the French. Today's topic is that the foreign policy blob, the foreign policy establishment in the United States, must learn to understand America's limits if the country is to remain preeminent. And I remember a time when I was in Washington doing my thing, and one of the guys, I was the major kind of TV face for the Heritage Foundation on foreign policy for a time just after 9-11, and one of my Wilsonian internationalist competitors over, I think he was at the Brookings Institution, but I don't remember. And he's since had various positions in the Defense Department, and I'll save his name to protect the guilty. But he did a very clever line where he would acknowledge with me that there were limits to what the United States could do, and then he could never name a country he didn't want to intervene in. And one time I, I'd had enough of this, and I was on, I think, Fox, and I said to him, look, can, can we just specifically name certain African countries where you think the United States ought not to intervene? And he refused to be pressed in doing so because to do so would be to limit his freedom of action. Beneath all the talk about limits and choices that need being make, made, the dirty secret is that the foreign policy blob don't want to live in the real world. I should explain reality to them as well. They must learn to understand that America is limited, and that means it has to make choices. The very reason they don't want it to be limited is they don't want to make choices. They don't want to say, this area is more important than that, or we must do this in this country, or we can't do something that we'd like to do. This emotional tie is so strong in the establishment that they, with, with a straight face, will make everything a primary American interest in an effort not to make choices, because to make choices is to accept limits and that there are things you can't do that you'd like to do, and this is beyond them. Like a spoiled, entitled child, they can't bear that sometimes in life the word is no. Sometimes the word is no, and that's what they can't do. And you see that at present, and there are a number of little issues that came up that, that really make this point, and why this is important, and why this lack of understanding limits of the foreign policy blob um, is a real danger to the preeminence of the United States moving ahead. Because in the world that we're entering, which on the surface is bipolar with China, beneath it there's a multipolarity viewing with, as we've said before, five or so great powers, the UK Anglosphere, Japan, India, the EU and Russia, and then regional powers around the world, the developing world, what used to be known as the third world, also having its own interests and a lot of room to move with the football countries like Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states, Turkey, Nigeria, South Africa, Brazil, Argentina, Indonesia, China, and India, again, in this, in this line as well, and that none of these countries necessarily are going to fall in lockstep with what the United States is going to do. So it is essential that in a world where America is relatively less power than it did in 1945, and how could it not have less power? In 1945, the rest of the world was in ruins, and the United States was not, and it had disproportionate, oddly disproportionate power. But the foreign policy blob still whistles by the graveyard and acts as if we have that kind of power now. 
or the brief moment of unipolarity after the collapse of the Soviet Union, when the United States could literally do just about anything it wanted and it had give to do so. Those days are over, and yet the foreign policy blob refuses to acknowledge any limitation, even though we live in a world that on the surface seems bipolar, but frankly, it's a mixture of bipolar and this multipolarity, this cacophony of voices. The United States remains chairman of the board, but there are a lot more board members and some of them don't agree with the United States. And so the United States is going to have to pick and choose what it actually does. And this is a world the foreign policy blobs simply don't want to live in. So they run kicking and screaming, living in a magical thinking era where they can simply do anything. You see this in the writings of people like Andrew Michta, who says he doesn't see what the problem is with the United States fighting, in effect, a two-front war if it had to with Ukraine and Taiwan, that that is easily doable that the United States can do these things at the same time when the facts simply speak otherwise. Let me just give you a few numbers. The fact that this shouldn't be in doubt, it's simply that Andrew wants to do Ukraine, even though he knows it's not a primary interest, but he, want to, he wants to act like the United States can easily manage it. Otherwise, we won't do Ukraine. And so he goes at it reverse engineering from the backside. This is dangerous, dangerous wishful thinking that just doesn't make sense. The United States, just a couple numbers that really ought to put pay to this conversation. The United States has over $30 billion, sorry, 30 trillion, that's T, that's a number beyond imagination, over $30 trillion in debt. The United States is debt to GDP ratio at the federal, state, and local level is well over 100% of GDP, $31 trillion in federal debt. In other words, there's not a lot of money out there. And five areas make up the lion's share of American budgetary spending. Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, interest on the debt, and defense spending. Let me name them again. Medicare and Medicaid, not easily cut to put it mildly, Social Security, all three of these are a huge weight on the country as we live beyond the age of 62, as I mentioned with the French. Interest on the debt is $31 trillion in debt. The bankers have to be paid. The interest has to be paid. And about a trillion dollars in defense spending when you add in the onerous price of these people have families and we pay for them at a rather generous rate in the military, as we should. But that's another trillion dollars. So frankly, as I said with the French, Something's got to give here that all these things are pressing down on what the United States can do. $31 trillion in debt, over 100% GDP, depending on how you count it, somewhere about 115% debt to GDP, meaning we could work all year and we'd still be in debt in the biggest market in the world. And yet people like Andrew Michta think we can do everything all at once, and it's no big deal. These are the people who spent a trillion dollars on the Iraq war, the Wilsonian internationalists, the liberal hawks in the Democratic Party, and the neoconservatives formerly in the Republican Party. The easiest laugh line I can get in America about Iraq when we hear the feeble lamentations of Robert Kagan, David Frum, people like this that, oh no, the war was a great success, is simply to say to hard-pressed Americans, aware their schools are a mess, their roads are a mess, they have vast credit card debt, and the country's $30 trillion in debt, the easiest line, laugh line I can have is simply to say, do you want your trillion dollars back from the Iraq war?
And everybody laughs because of course we do. Of course it wasn't worth it. We took a third order priority, Saddam Hussein, and spent a trillion dollars. This is what ruinous decadent states do that are on their way to the door. And this matters now because above all, the Ukraine firsters want you to believe that the United States can easily afford what's going on. And as was reported today, when you add in the money already given of every form, humanitarian aid, aid to the government of Ukraine directly, military aid, the United States has spent already and has pledged to spend, and has meaning it has not yet spent, about $200 billion on Ukraine. $200 billion on a country that's not a NATO member, that many in the United States think should never be a NATO member, that's among the most corrupt places on the planet, with which the United States has no significant interest, no trading interest, no geostrategic interest, no military basis, no long-standing political ties, and is not of great geostrategic importance to the United States. And we decided that it's worth $200 billion. And indeed, now that they're running short of supplies, as the leaked Pentagon Papers make clear, we should keep spending money. Just give them a blank check. And as President Biden has made clear, say, you know what? We won't, you know, we're not pushing the Ukrainians to come to the negotiating table, even though they're running out of air defense missiles. And even though no one can see how they can possibly do better than they are now in the war. In other words, pushing them to the negotiating table, given their miraculous escape from oblivion, which we all celebrate, that pushing them to the negotiating table isn't in our interest. Instead, we'll just give them the American national credit card and pay for the salaries. Yes, this is not a mistake. Pay for the salaries and pensions of their government workers. The United States taxpayers paying for the pensions of the most corrupt public sector workers you could imagine. And everyone says, we can manage that. That's no problem. Despite the $31 trillion in debt, over 100% debt to GDP ratio. We're not quite France and Greece, but we're well on our way. And if we keep doing things like saying there are no limits to what America can do as we did over Iraq, we won't have the money to do the things that we need to do, that there are interests in doing. Just this past couple days, Admiral John Aquilino, who's the commander of the U.S. Indo-Pacific Command, Admiral Aquilino says that Xi is overseeing the largest, fastest, most comprehensive military buildup since the Second World War. And obviously Xi and China are doing this to retake Taiwan. Uh, he told this to the House during testimony to the House Armed Services Committee. Uh, he said, we do not have the luxury of time. We must act now to maintain our forces and maintain an open Indo-Pacific, and that this is indeed a threat. The Indo-Pacific, as we've said before, is where all the world's, much of the world's future economic growth is coming from, and much of the world's future political risk. It's where the only peer competitor superpower, China, can challenge the United States. This is a priority. Keeping the Indo-Pacific open and free and tilted toward an American position of dominance, as it currently is. The Chinese are hemmed in by the first island chain. Their navy can't break out into the blue waters of the Pacific and the Indian Ocean because that first chain of islands keeps them hemmed in, all of whom are American allies. Places like Taiwan, Japan, the Philippines, Malaysia, Singapore, down to the Nicobars, the Strait of Malacca, and India. All these countries are American allies and keep the Chinese 
hemmed in. If the Chinese were to take Taiwan, they would complete what they see as their national product. They would break out of this first island chain. They would also control an entity, Taiwan, with the largest concentration of advanced industrial computer chips in the world. And they would be the dominant power in the Indo-Pacific, the most important region in the world in terms of geostrategy, as the two superpowers vie for dominance in the most vibrant, economically growing region in the world. For all these reasons, this is a priority. This needs to be done. The United States must, to avoid war, increase deterrence. And the way to do this is build up our ties with our allies through things like the Quadrilateral Initiative, our nascent NATO uh, designed to deter Chinese aggression, and headed by great power Japan, great power India, and Anglosphere member Australia, as well as the U.S. The United States must remember that it used to have a trade policy and do things with a comprehensive and progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership, headlined by Japan, an economic free trade area in the zone that presently excludes China, was designed by America, and then we ran away because Barack Obama couldn't be bothered to lift a finger and actually push for its political movement forward as his party grew increasingly protectionist, as did the Republicans. We have ruinously two protectionist parties currently in the United States. We must rediscover geoeconomics in the Indo-Pacific to combat the Chinese so that we don't have to go fight them. And we must build up Five Eyes, our worldwide sharing of intelligence, open source signals intelligence with the Anglosphere. Australia, New Zealand, Canada, the UK, the US, we must add in Japan, to this list and look more and more at sharing intelligence on China. We must do all of this, make sure our military is ready to deter the Chinese over Taiwan, because if we can get by the next few years as the Quad grows, as these alliances take form and harden, as India comes more and more online as an American partner in the region, as this occurs, the Chinese may well hesitate and we can avoid war, and then the region is only upside and an American a sponsored world with the United States as the dominant power still is secure. For all these reasons, this is obviously the priority. And let me make you the larger argument about why this should be the priority. This should be the priority in a geostrategic sense, going back to Speakman um, and looking at, again, some of the great theorists of, of all time. Speakman is my favorite. Think of it this way for those of you who've played Risk. The dominant bit of land in the world is the Eurasian landmass, the world island, the Eurasian landmass, the world island, as Speakman called it, the great foreign policy theorist. And those of you who think of it, if you control Europe and Asia, you tend to win the game of risk. Why? The most people, the most resources, the most ports. This is the center of the world. North America is an island, and indeed the Western Hemisphere, North and South America, is an island off this main Eurasian landmass. Whoever dominates this landmass will dominate the world. Now, the United States, similar to Britain dominating Europe while remaining outside it, is the dominant power in the world. Just as was true for Britain over the last 500 years, the foreign policy of Britain is really simple because of geostrategy. Nobody must dominate Europe because if they do, that's bigger than Britain and then they can then bring their power to bear on the British and dominate them. So Britain always sided with the second or third greatest powers in Europe against the greatest one. And this explains why Britain fought against the Spanish Empire and the Armada, the Sun King, Louis XIV, the Habsburg Empire for a time, uh, Napoleon later on, Hitler later on, 
This was all part of the plan that the United that the UK wanted to stop any one power from dominating Europe. Well, the United States, because of its position in the world geographically, is in a similar position to Britain, eerily, the last ordering power in the world. The United States is now the ordering power in the world. And the simple reality is the United States, and FDR got this entirely right in World War II, must let no one dominate either Europe or Asia, either part of the great world island. And as long as no one dominates either Europe or Asia, either part of the great world island, the U.S. will remain the dominant power in the world. Now, Europe, there's no problem because you have a cacophony of voices in the EU, a Tower of Babel, but as weak as they are, they still have a market hugely superior to that of Russia. And for those of you like Andrew Micht and others who say Russia is about to make their way into Berlin, disturbing people at the great Hotel Adlon at the Brandenburg Gate, where I used to hang out, uh, that's not going to happen. They can't even beat Ukraine. Nobody thinks they can march into NATO which could easily thump them. And Putin knows that, nor is he threatening any NATO countries, not because he doesn't want to, but because he can't. So the idea that anyone in Europe is in danger, rather the Ukraine war shows the reverse. It shows how weak and desperate and cornered, and yes, that makes them dangerous, Russia is. It doesn't show them as easily advancing to the cafes of Berlin or Europe. So nobody dominates Europe. You have the EU, you have a series of great powers in it, you have Britain leaving it, so it's weak. You have Russia, uh, which is an aging gas station with nuclear weapons, uh, barely clinging on to great power status. Nobody's going to dominate Europe, so the United States doesn't need to worry about that at present. Hence, all the talk about the sky falling and the chicken littles as to whoever runs Ukraine is entirely wasted. By this very definition, Ukraine is not, not, not an American priority. The idea that this somehow transfers to Taiwan is just thinking from people who want us to do it, but don't want facts to get in the way of their emotions. On the other hand, China is in a position by the Speakman logic that no one can dominate Roosevelt's rule. Nobody can dominate either Europe or Asia, any part of the Eurasian landmass, the world island. China, if it were to take Taiwan, would be the dominant power in the Indo-Pacific. The rest of the allies would quickly see that America couldn't maintain its dominant alliance system, and they would do what countries do in such a situation. They'd cut deals as quickly as they could with China on as good a terms as they could manage. They would bandwagon with the winning power, and that's what happens. That's the math of geopolitics. And so in Asia, we do have a threat to the American established order. The threat is China, and as Admiral Aquilino made very clear, they are arming at a rate that has not been seen since World War II to try to break their way out. This overwhelmingly is what the United States should be focusing on. Overwhelmingly. This is the obvious issue. So you have a country, America, that despite being undoubtedly preeminent, chairman of the board still, the ordering power of the world, there always is one, President's America, has real limits. Those limits are imposed by $31 trillion in debt, over 100% debt to G GDP, and already spending a trillion dollars on defense and more may be needed, plus having to spend money on Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, and interest on the debt. Those are all locked into the budget. You can't negate old people or say, sorry, go die in the street. So because of this, there are huge costs on the United States. That in and of itself must mean we can't do everything. But even more importantly, we shouldn't do everything because these domestic matters 
are at least as important a part of national health as our foreign policy. As Eisenhower said, our economic policy is the ultimate lodestar of our national power. Our national power is determined by economic power, so I can't spend the odd $200 billion and give the Ukrainians the most corrupt country one can imagine the, the, a blank check and say, spend as much money as you want because we think it's a shame the Russians are bullying you. And of course it is. But we cannot do everything. And the minute you accept that we can't do everything, the choices to be made here are crystal clear. Go all in on the Indo-Pacific. Do not go all in on Ukraine. And for those of you who don't, who act as though there aren't choices to be made, there's even a more granular approach to this. The Ukrainians are running out of missiles. We've given them our defense munitions in terms of javelins, these missiles that have been so successful. And at the same time, some of this wherewithal is needed in terms by the Taiwanese. And also there's only a limited amount of money to even the immense American defense budget. The choice is being made on the ground, and if we give things to the Ukrainians and spend money on the Ukrainians, whether we like it or not, and whatever the magical thinking of the foreign policy blob, there are gigantic limits to what we can do. And if we are prioritizing, as we are, what seems to be urgent as opposed to what seems to be important, Ukraine is urgent, but Taiwan is important. Ukraine is urgent, but Taiwan is important. As long as we do this... We are heading for fiscal ruin. And so the simple policy is go all in on the Indo-Pacific. The only threat, the Speakman threat, the geostrategic threat to Roosevelt's rule, the only threat to American superpower dominance for the rest of my life is China in Taiwan. This is what we should be focusing on like a laser beam. The problem with a foreign policy blob that thinks you can do everything is you end up doing everything badly. And we can't afford to do Taiwan badly. That means we need to urge the Ukrainians privately to go to the table as soon as is practicable and limit our spending, our endless spending, on what is the third order priority. We simply don't have the wherewithal anymore to make such stupid geostrategic choices. Thank you very much. I think this was an important one. Happy to get this off my chest. The foreign policy blob of the United States must learn to understand America's limits if the country is to remain preeminent, that means do the Indo-Pacific and don't do Ukraine. Hope you enjoyed this and have a great weekend. For those of you who haven't subscribed, please do so. And for those of you who have, we are really, really excited by the momentum that these podcasts have generated. Please do give. We're only asking $70 a year to give you forthright strategic analysis that you won't hear from the blob. And I put my call record against theirs any day of the week. So please do give the $70 so we can give this the passion and the time that it deserves. Thanks very much.